following is an episode of Ward Radio and does not represent the thoughts or the opinions of KHTS, its owners, or any of its affiliates, nor does it represent the official opinion of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. So whatever conventional understandings we have of faith, stereotypical views of faith, uh, we should not expect to find them here. That's, that's not what this is saying. This is saying something radically, revolutionarily different. I love this way that you just clearly bring it to show. It's supposed to be an active process. I'm speaking the language of science when I do that, okay? Uh, I just drew all those terms from Alma 32. Uh. Prophecy is conditional. No, this is great. That is something you can control. This is stuff you can control, exactly. So faith maybe functions differently with regard to things you can't control and things that you can't. What would we expect Satan to do? Negative prophecy is a call to repentance. Positive prophecy is a call to action. Right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, back to Ward Radio. I am your host, Cardinalis, and today I'm joined in the studio by Brad Whitbeck and Don Bradley. And today we're going to do a deep doctrinal dive with Don, the author of The Lost 116 Pages, ostensibly the numero uno Mormon historical book on the shelves right now, and it should be on yours. Check it out. But he doesn't just talk history. Don Bradley here has actually suggested a revolutionary new reading. Okay, an unconventional interpretation of a beloved chapter of the Book of Mormon, Mormon, none other than Alma 32. Don, I know you have a lot you want to say, so I'm just going to give you the carpet right here. Tell us how we should be reinterpreting, reinterpreting, reinterpreting <laughs> Alma 32. I've heard it both ways. Yeah, that's yeah. true. So hit it, Don. What are All we right, doing wrong? So if you think about Alma 32 is, of course, about faith, right? People in the church know this, that Alma uses an analogy, or we could say really a parable about a seed, right? Where planting this seed and nourishing it is like exercising faith. When we think about faith, right, what's what's sort of the conventional view of faith, and particularly maybe kind of like the stereotype of faith, right? What if somebody disconnected from reality? Right. If somebody says, Well, just have faith. Mm-hmm. What just what what are you supposed to do believe. if you just have faith? Just believe and kind of like if somebody tells you just have faith, like like oh well, I'm afraid this won't work out, and they're like just have faith. I mean, doesn't that isn't the impression you get from that like kind of like don't do anything, just believe? Yes. It's almost right. like shut up, and you're like, annoying me with your cynical reality. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's yeah. that, that's really what it means. Right. You so know? Just have faith, and they mean like. Well, you know, I know your evidence only takes you to this point, but I want you to believe something that's way up here. Believe way beyond your evidence. Have faith. Don't, you know, be like a passive recipient of a belief. Be a passive recipient of blessings that are going to come to you. Like, like you know, last Christ is going to come someday. A second coming is going to come. The millennium is going to come. Just have faith in that. And, Just like wait and God's going to make it all happen. And if it doesn't, it's because it wasn't God's will. Yeah, right? it wasn't God's yeah. will. Right. Right. We sound like literally a bunch of cynical atheists right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> but, but this is this is um, it's a criticism a of our culture view of faith, yes. and it's also like a, uh, can become a stereotype of faith. And but it is often how faith is approached. There have been many talks against this view of faith, right? Yes, exactly. Talking about how faith needs to be more active. Yes, and the best of these is Alma thirty-two, but we don't always recognize that. Okay? The best such talk. Hey, okay. so. 
let me ask you, if I start talking, if I come in here and I start talking about doing experiments and I start talking about particles and I start talking about dormancy. You're not trying to open those wormholes in CERN or anything like that, are you? <laughs> then you, what you got There's is, no Joseph Smith manuscript what, what that had the got, codes right? to CERN, okay. right? <laughs> so what you got right there is I'm speaking the language of science when I do that, okay? Yeah. Uh, I just drew all those terms from Mama 32. Oh. Yeah. As soon as Alma starts talking about faith, these are the words he uses. Uh-huh. Do an experiment. Mm-hmm. Experiment. We don't Wait, we talking, is this, am I looking at the right book? Is this a science book? No, this is the Book of Mormon. Oh, yeah. okay. Okay. He tells us to start having faith by doing an experiment upon his words. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then he talks about exercising even just a particle of faith. Right. And he talks about your faith not being dormant. Right. So we think of like dormancy and like yeah. scientific and biology or whatever. Right. But here he's using what we'd ordinarily think of as the language of science to talk about what it is to have faith. So his view of faith here that he's trying to get at is not like a conventional understanding, just have faith, just passively accept certain propositions beyond your evidence. He's actually giving what we call an empirical understanding. Faith is not like an event of belief. Faith is this empirical process of gaining truth, of gaining goodness, of building truth and goodness, right? And so part of how we can see this, okay, is actually what he says at the very beginning. So so you, you see what I'm saying, right? Faith is like something sort of like scientific, right? It's like a yeah. scientific-like process, but it's focused on spiritual truth and spiritual goodness rather than just like things about the material world. Okay, right? I love okay. it, yeah. So when he introduces this idea, he also, here's the larger context, right? Alma 32, 27, he says, awake and arouse your faculties even to an experiment upon my words and exercise a particle of faith, okay? His words here are so fascinating and they're so energizing, right? He says, okay, awake. This is the first thing he says, awake. So instead of sort of like put your mind to sleep, no, 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 wake it up. Energize your faculties, yes. So he says, Awake and arouse your faculties. So 1828, Book of Mormon is translated 1829, published 1830. There happens to be the first Webster's Dictionaries in the U.S. is 1828. So this tells us what these words meant right at the time the Book of Mormon is being translated. What a blessing. Right. Bingo. Yeah. So arouse here, the definition in 1828 Webster's is to excite into action that which is at rest, to stir or put into motion or exertion that which is language languid, to arouse one from sleep, to arouse the dormant faculties. Don, got to be careful. You're making it sound an awful lot like faith might require you to do some work. (laughs) Right. Or almost exercise the scientific method. Like, I mean, when I was on my mission, I would always tell people, take the six weeks challenge. Like, I don't want you to just believe me because, oh, have faith. And, you know, if you like me and you're my friend, you'll have faith in what I tell you. I would literally say, I want you to try this for yourself. And I don't know a single person that's prayed twice a day, attended church on Sundays and done their daily scripture reading. And then at the end of that six weeks, hasn't engaged in fervent prayer uh, to ask, hey, Lord, is this the path that I should take? That doesn't notice such a drastic. 
drastic improvement in every aspect of their life that they don't get that answer from God and don't have an internal testimony that, yeah, this is what I should be doing. I would call it the six weeks challenge. And I would literally say, I want you to apply the scientific method to your spirituality. And people be like, well, I thought you didn't believe in science because I watch CNN, you know? And so it just worked. And I'm loving, I love what Alma has said here and how you're, you are speaking my language, Don. So, so he's saying to take something that's at rest, that's dormant, right? And to wake it up. Okay. Well, what is it you're supposed to wake up? Okay. Awake and arouse your faculties. Okay. 1828 Webster's faculty, that power of the mind or intellect, which enables it to receive, revive, or modify perceptions as the faculty of seeing, hearing, imagining, remembering. The faculties may be called the powers and capacities of the mind. So when he says, awake and arouse your faculties, he's literally saying, wake up your sleeping mind, turn it on and put it to work. Mm -hmm. We usually use the idea of faith. Well, like, I'm struggling with this issue. Well, just have faith, you know, yeah. like turn your brain off, stop thinking, just have faith. His idea of faith, how he's introducing faith, it, 180 degree opposite, right? Mm-hmm. You, I want you to have faith. Step one, wake up, turn on your mind. You've had your mind to sleep, turn it on and do an experiment, okay? So he's laying out an, an empirical process of getting truth, an experimental process that first involves turning on your mind. Okay? So so whatever conventional understandings we have of faith, stereotypical views of faith, uh, we should not expect to find them here. That's that's not what this is saying. This is saying something radically, revolutionarily different. I love it. Keep going. Okay. So one of the ways that we can see this is that in Alma's parable, it actually has quite a few um, commonalities, parallels with and differences from Jesus's parallel parables in the New Testament. Okay, mm. so part of the way that we should understand what Alma is trying to tell us and what this means within the context of a larger canon of Scripture is by looking at the parallels and the differences here. So Jesus talks about faith in connection with the seed. If you have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, you'll be able to move mountains. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, probably part of the reason why Jesus is using the mustard seed is the mustard seed was so tiny. It was like the tiniest of seeds. Right? Yeah. And so there's this idea of like you use a tiny quantity of something. But why didn't Jesus say like a dust moat or a, something else really tiny? Why specifically yeah. a seed? Because it's living. Seed is a living thing. And in other parables, Jesus talks about... Um, like uh, like the parable of the sower, right? Or, or the, how the kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, right? Which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, is the greatest of all herbs and becomes a tree, right? And so why is Jesus using a seed in these analogies? Because a seed grows, right? So in, but that's not really clear when Jesus says, just like have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, people tend to think of that as like, well, he's just talking about just if you just possess a really small quantity of faith. But that possessing view of faith is a passive view of faith. Faith is just Mm. something that you have. Whereas what's implicit in the analogy is it's a seed. It's something that grows. That turns it from passive to 
active. And we see that when Jesus talks about the grain of a mustard seed being something that grows into a great tree. That's Alma's analogy, right? Alma 32, you start with the seed. At the beginning of this parable, you've got a seed. At the end of it, you've got a tree springing up to eternal life, right? Mm -hmm. And so Alma's parable is unpacking in greater detail the same kind of meaning that's implicit in Jesus's parables about seeds and faith, right? Mm -hmm. Now, Jesus also talks about um, seeds in the context of uh, the parable of the sower. Okay, so here um, he talks about, you know, the seed is planted on different kinds of ground, like stony ground, right? It has no depth. Uh, when the sun was up, the seed was scorched because it had no root, right? And it withered away. And there are actually several parallel parallels here between Alma, Jesus's parable of the sower and Alma's parable, right? Like Jesus says, it it had no depth of earth. Alma says it did not get any, will not get any root. Uh, Alma says when the sun came up, uh, I mean, Jesus says when the sun was up, Alma says, but when the heat of the sun cometh, right? Jesus says it was scorched. Alma says, and scorcheth it, right? Jesus says, because it had no root, it withered away. Alma says, because it hath no root, it withers away, right? So you see there's some very closely parallel and sometimes even identical phrasing here. But so with all those similarities between these two parables, what, if anything, is different between them? Well, there's actually, fascinatingly, uh, a big difference, okay? In um, Jesus's parable, um, this, who, who's the sower? Well, it might be like the people spreading the gospel or whatever. In Alma's parable, you are the sower yourself, okay? And you are also the ground. You plant the seed in your own heart. You mm-hmm. are the ground and you are the sower. So instead of it being like you're a passive ground that a seed grows in, you're also the active planter of the seed. So it again, we have Alma emphasizing much more Active like a personal responsibility, faith. almost personal yeah. responsibility. Okay, so faith here isn't exclusively receptive; it's also proactive. Okay, so similarly, Jesus um, talks about um, uh, uses the phrase "take no thought" in Matthew six, right? And he's talking about having faith, not worrying, right? Take no thought because God will provide, and so on. Now in Alma thirty two. In Alma's parable of the seed, he says, but if you neglect the tree and take no thought for its nourishment, behold, it will not get any root. When the heat of the sun cometh and scorcheth it, because it has no root, it withers away. Okay? So the only other place that take no thought is used in the scriptures is Jesus's parable here, right? But Alma's emphasis is not on taking no thought being like a good thing, like in the context of not worrying, mm-hmm. Okay. To Alma, taking no thought is a bad thing. If you don't take thought to actively nourish the seed in this process of faith, this empirical process, it will wither away, right? So we have like a different sort of emphasis here on faith. Um, the a similar similar phrasing is used when Oliver Cowdery has attempted to translate. It's basically the same phrase, actually, but like the verb is in a different tense, right? So when Oliver Cowdery has attempted to translate from the Book of Mormon and failed, he's told in DNC 9, Behold, you have not understood. You have supposed that I would give it unto you when you took no thought. Save it were to ask me, okay? So here the Lord is saying, uh, that's not a good thing, right? Yeah. That you didn't think about it. You were supposed to think about it. Yeah. This revelatory process is a process where your mind is supposed to be active, like in Alma's parable of the seed, 
awake and arouse your faculties to an experiment, mm -hmm. that's the same kind of thing the Lord is telling Oliver Cowdery here. Yeah. Okay? It mm -hmm. almost sounds to me like when Jesus is saying, take no thought for things you don't know about in a negative light, because he yeah. then says, like, sufficient is the day unto the evil thereof, right? right? right. It sounds like he's saying, don't worry about things that you cannot control, right. where mm -hmm. this is talking about when Alma says, if you have taken no thought for the nourishment of the word, right? right? It, you're That is something you can control. This is stuff you can control, yeah. exactly. So faith maybe functions differently with well, regard to things you can't control and things that you can. Well, mm -hmm. also what kind of came to my mind was actually we recently had a discussion with the author of the uh, Seven Steps to a Stress-Free Life or whatever the name of that uh, self-help book was. It, Randall yeah. Johnson, R.J. Yeah. Johnson, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And I love how he said in oh, one of his five steps, I'm botching it, of course, said, um, if you have to speculate, speculate positively. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's where the personal responsibility comes mm -hmm. in. Like, OK, the human mind is blessed with the ability to speculate. It's our mm -hmm. ability to have yeah. a metaphysical experience. Right. Yes. But it's almost as though we have like this responsibility that if we want to have a high quality of life, which is what the Lord wants for us, which is what the gospel teaches us, you know, uh, it's almost like the Lord knows, okay, you're going to have to speculate. So like if you have to speculate, at least speculate positively, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. this is great. I'm digging this. This is awesome. Keep going. I, okay. Keep going. Yeah. So, so we have this view where faith in Alma 32 and this parable of the seed, it's this active process of discovering the good and the true and building good, growing goodness in this plant, right? mm -hmm. building truth. And so what would be like application of this, right? Well, I think we see this in the idea of prophecy. So prophecy is another thing that I think we tend to get wrong, like we do to a great extent faith. Okay? So we tend to think, well, the scriptures have these prophecies of like negative events that are going to happen in the last days, right? Destructions and so on. So we tend to think, well, it's prophesied that there are going to be these destructions. That's just, that just means it's going to happen. And so it becomes something to like worry about. Well, you know, all these people are going to be destroyed. All these terrible things are going to happen. Well, think about Jonah. God tells Jonah, go tell the people of Nineveh they're going to be destroyed because they're wicked. Yeah. He doesn't put a clause in there that says, well, if you re unless you repent or whatever, but that's implicit because, of course, not God's not going to destroy people if they repent, right? He's not – okay, yeah. God is like, right? Yeah. And so it's implicit. Obviously, he's not going to destroy them if they repent, right? And so Jonah goes out. He tells them, God's going to destroy you because you're wicked. Turns out they repent. Jonah's like, you've embarrassed me, God. This is he's like a teenager. You're so embarrassing. You're such an embarrassing parent. You didn't destroy all these people when I told them they were going to be destroyed. Right? <laughs> and God's like, well, why would I destroy them when they repented? These are my, I created them. Yeah, know? yeah. And so prophecy is conditional. Mm -hmm. Negative prophecies, prophecies of destruction of bad things, they're conditional. They're a call to repentance. Mm -hmm. They're saying, change course in time so this stuff doesn't have to happen in the same way positive prophecy is a call to action hey positive prophecy doesn't mean well god has prophesied that this is going to happen so we can just sit on our butts and not worry about it and god's going to make it happen uh -huh. you know i mean i mean, imagine if all the people in the scriptures and like joseph smith had done this there would be no scriptures so there repeat would be no that restoration. negative prophecy is a warning is a call to, to, is a call to repentance, repentance. Positive prophecy is a call to action. Okay, so positive call to action. Negative prophecy is a call to repentance. Positive prophecy is a call to action. Right. Wow. And so when we're exercising faith regarding prophecy, 
That means if there are negative prophecies, we try to take the hint, we try to take the warning, we try to avoid that our outcome we're being warned about. Faith in prophecy when it comes to positive prophecies is what's our part? What can we do to make this happen? Right. So, so we have examples of this that we are not necessarily very aware of in the restoration. Right. So, for instance, um, well, I would argue we have examples of it in Jesus. Right. So, like um, when Jesus is doing certain things in um, the New Testament, um, like commanding his disciples to carry swords, then like saying certain words from the cross and so on. This is actually fulfilling various biblical prophecies. Are we to think Jesus wasn't aware of these prophecies? It just happened this Jesus knows this Bible. Yeah, he knew it all, yeah. Right? He's deliberately fulfilling the prophecies, mm-hmm. right? So how about like uh, Joseph Smith? We all know the story of how Joseph Smith sends the Book of Mormon character transcript to the learned, right, through Martin Harris. But we tend to think this just happens. This is amazing that this happens, right? Well, Justice Smith knows about this prophecy. He's trying to fulfill it. Why do I think this? Well, in the um, on the Discord there, um, so in Joseph Smith's um, 1838 account of the first vision, he says that the Lord told him that people draw near unto me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Do you know where that's from? Uh, what book of Isaiah, right? Isaiah 29. Yeah. It, um, the verse immediately after the prophecy that the learned, the book will be taken to the unlearned and to the learned. So if Joseph Smith has had the Lord quote this to him at the first vision, you better believe he's going to follow this up and read that prophecy. He's familiar with Isaiah 29. Oliver Cowdery, in giving his 1834-35 history of the Restoration, he says that Joseph was aware of this prophecy before he sends the characters to Anthem. That's why he sends the characters to Anthem. He's trying to fulfill the prophecy. Emily uh, Coburn Austin, or Austin Coburn, um, she was a member of the Knight family, the Joseph Knight family. She says the same thing, right? So Joseph Smith was trying to fulfill prophecy. So mm. we should be trying to fulfill prophecy. We should be trying to prepare for the second coming. Faith here doesn't just mean, well, let's sit on our hands and let's, come on, God, lay it on us, right? We're supposed to be doing stuff. And so even like the second coming, the early Latter-day Saints, like Apostle Jedediah M. Grant, he said, you want a heaven? Go and make one, mm-hmm. right? This, Brigham and others talked about the second coming as being something that would happen when we are ready for it. We're supposed to be doing things. And in a way, there is a literal second coming where Christ will come back. But there's also, remember, in the Testament, we are the body of Christ. And so to the extent that we live as the body of Christ, in the world, Christ is here. There's a sort of corporate, like like communal second coming before Christ, where we all come together as Zion before Christ can literally come down and join us. We, yeah. as part of our faith, we have to be doing stuff. Yeah, dude. Good thing I'm not your bishop, bro. You'd be screwed and teaching every fifth Sunday. <laughs> you know what I said? Like that was awesome. Unfortunately, we got hard out literally coming up in the next 10 seconds. Guys, we're going to hang around a little bit afterwards for some bonus materials for members. If you're listening to us on the radio, you can check us out on YouTube at Ward Radio or you can check us out at wardradio.com. Right now, tell me who you are.